Hello, we are joined this week by Chance Miller. Hello, Chance Miller. Hello, Benjamin. How's it going? I am good. I was trying to think of an adjective for you. I know. I have had. How about reviewer? Reviewer? That's not as exciting, but... (laughs) I let it slide last... Chance Miller. I let it slide last time, but after this, I I don't know if I'll be back. Uh, I know. In advance, I need to... Next time, I'll think of one in advance, so I'm not... Don't you? But, you the, the last you make... few, the last few times you did it, I could, I had a few adjectives ready to go, uh, <laughs> but I've exhausted the ones that are obviously coming off the top of my head. Don't you make like a dictionary app or something? You should. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Next time, I'll just look at that and whatever the word is, yeah. that's what you're getting called. Yeah, regardless of whether it's good or bad. Anyway, a lot of stuff happened this week, so let's jump right in. Uh, firstly, Mark Germer had a report in uh, the latest edition of his Power Newsletter about the M3 Max. Um, obviously, uh, we're on the M2 generation at the moment. We're expecting a f- new Mac at WWDC in the form of the 15-inch MacBook Air, but that is believed to be running on M2 architecture or at least something very similar to the M2 chip, basically just a bigger screen-sized version of the 13-inch MacBook Air that we were, that came out last year. Um, but as soon as the end of the year, uh, Gurman reports, he expects to see the first M3 Max, either the end of the year or early in 2024, um, which is a roughly in corroborating other other reports. But what was most interesting about um, his uh, publishing on the weekend was that he actually gave some details about specs. So based on logs from a developer who shared with him uh, anonymously that on test hardware that Apple's using to test the M3 chips, uh, basically, German says that the M3 Pro chip here. This is what we got details on. The base M3 chip, M3 Pro chip will feature 12 CPU cores, 18 GPU cores, and 36 gigabytes of RAM. Um, obviously, you know stuff can change in testing. There might be multiple prototypes, but German seemed pretty confident this is the spec. And so, if that comes to fruition, that's an increase of two CPU cores and two more GPU cores compared to the baseline M2 Pro chip as well as 4 gigs of extra RAM from 32 up to 36. And that's on the base model one, so you can speculate that, you know, the higher binned models will get, you know, an extra couple of cores. Um, And you can expect similar increases across the whole M2 line. This is specifically M2 Pro, but you can expect, you know, a couple of core bumps on the base M2, on the Max and the Ultra as well. Um, So that's raw core count. Obviously, we're also expecting that the M3 generation will be built on the 5... on the three nanometer architecture, whereas the current ones are five nanometer, um, and so a combination of additional core count and um, more efficiency brought via the smaller fabrication process, because three nanometers literally refers to the distance between transistors on the chip, and if they're closer together, it means less heat because there's less distance to travel, and it means stuff's faster because there's less distance to travel. So it's a win all round, and it seems like the M3 will probably have a significantly improved either performance profile or battery efficiency profile. Uh, or maybe a mixture of both because we're getting the process increase and we're getting just increases in the number of cores themselves. So that sounds pretty exciting. And the increase in the M3 Pro compared to the M2 Pro is in efficiency cores. Is that right? So the M2 Pro is four efficiency cores and six high performance. And the M3 Pro would be six and six. Yes, yes. Um, Which kind of mirrors what they did for the jump from the M1 to the M2 where they kept the number of high-performance cores the same and increased the efficiency core count. Um, And so that's the same here. But at this point, the name, like, efficiency core is somewhat of a misnomer uh, because the efficiency cores are pretty, pretty fast. Uh, And, like, a lot of the time, if you're just idling on your computer or just, like, browsing the web, you're never even touching the performance cores at all. So really what these... Adding a couple of extra efficiency cores, it gives you... um, multitasking performance because you just have more threads running on separate cores and yeah like they might not be as fast as the super high performance cores which generally run the single threaded tasks but like it's like a you know the difference is not as great as what it sounds like um maybe compared to many years ago like in many years ago you know if you have like a intel chip that was the you know the efficiency intel chip it would be very very slow uh, these high efficiency Apple Silicon chips or the cores on the on the processor are still way faster than what you used to before so uh yeah, I guess if you're looking to max out performance, you'd obviously want more performance cores. Uh, but the efficiency cores improvements will also be, you know, actually noticeable. And maybe the performance core architecture is also improved a lot by the three nanometer stuff. So there's a jump there, and that's what will give you overall performance increases. Um, 
but yeah, it, it is kind of interesting that for now two generations in a row, they focused on increasing the number of efficiency cores over performance. Uh, but it, I wouldn't say that means like, oh, it's definitely not going to be very much faster. Like that's just not how it works anymore. And in terms of efficiency too, by adding those two more efficiency cores, then theoretically, correct me if I'm wrong, but that means theoretically there's less, there's more that those efficiency cores can do. So they'll be handing off to the high performance cores less often than they do now, which would yeah, exactly. be great for yeah. battery life. And Because that is one of the complaints you do see from some people who are pushing the current 14-inch and 16-inch MacBook Pros is that the battery life, when you push them, starts to go quick. So adding those two efficiency cores might help those people. Yeah, I definitely see that on mine. I only have the M1 um, thing, but even on that one in M1 Max, if you're just doing like web browsing or whatever, you, you, the battery does last for like hours and hours and hours right. and hours. But you drive up the GPU, drive up the CPU performance cores, and the battery life is a lot shorter. Um, and like yeah. you say, I, I do think there is an opportunity for like Apple to offer some more system controls. Like, you mm-hmm. know, prefer efficiency cores more, more you know, as like an option. Because right now in the balance mode, it still switches to performance cores quite often. But in many ways, you can dictate to the system. If you could dictate to the system, like, just stay on the efficiency cores all the time um, as like a, you know, like a battery saver option. Uh, I th- I think people would be surprised at how much battery they can get while also not losing that much on the performance front because like it's like um it's not linear right so like if you're mm-hmm. you know doing an expensive operation it might take ten seconds if you're on performance cores and twenty seconds on the efficiency cores but you're getting twice as much battery life for instance you know like so it would be nice if Apple kind of exposed some more controls there for people like so if you did have people that are complaining about battery life or whatnot like I think uh. Felipe Esposito, our colleague, mm-hmm. did a post on this recently, right? Um, if there was more fine-grained options and those ability for those options to exist uh, is enhanced by the actual physical cores having more efficiency cores on them, yeah, for sure. And macOS does have a low power mode now, but I don't. There's no granularity, and I don't think you really know what it's doing. So, and it's even a bit like that, the high, high power mode it has, right? You don't exactly. really know what that does either. You you turn it on. I think it does. Um, it turns off. ProMotion, so you, your screen uh, looks really laggy yeah. on the MacBook Pro, uh, and I think it does limit the core speeds a bit somehow. But yeah, it's not exactly clear. I think people have done some like side by side testing. It does improve the battery life, but they st- even if you're on low power mode, it still uses those high performance cores mm-hmm. uh, whenever it judges. And the other thing is sometimes the system just chooses wrong. Like most of the time, or you know, in the automatic mode, it it splits up the work quite well but there's definitely cases where like either it jumps to the performance cores when it doesn't need to or it gets stuck on the efficiency cores and something you actually want to be done quickly doesn't actually happen because the the high performance cores are never ramped up this is Mm. a problem that's actually realized in xcode a lot of the time so if just based on whatever you know heuristics that they use sometimes if you do a build in xcode uh, it can accidentally just be on the efficiency cores and never go to the high performance cores and then the builds a lot significantly slower um, so this is something where they're trying to just you know do it automatically for you, but they don't always uh, get it right. And so you know having some system settings, especially for like the pro use cases, uh, might be something they should look into. But yeah, I'm very excited for the M3 generation to come around. I don't think the M2 generation was like you know it was. I think it gave more performance increases than we were kind of anticipating for a year of a year update. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think there, there's a lot more headroom for the M3 to deliver significantly more impressive uh, numbers because you're getting more cores uh upgrade updated architecture and the increase in uh, the reduction in in process size all in one go so all those three things combined should uh, deliver a pretty significant difference and we can expect to see those maybe uh at the end of this year or if not you know definitely next year so what do you think the first mac with an m3 will be is it going to be macbook Ooh. pros or a base model macbook air or mac mini it could be an imac maybe that's true we haven't had a new imac since m1 or maybe the old like the the mac mini and ultra combination yeah the, the macbook pro obviously only just got updated in january but you have to kind of think that that was intended to come out like october november mm-hmm. so maybe they could have the m3 generation on track for october november this year uh the the, the timeline here is going to get kind of messy yeah, I think driven by the delays for the M2 MacBook Pro and 
what exactly happened the with Mac the MacBook <laughs> Air and the Mac Pro. Yeah, because yeah. it's uh, going to be weird like, if the you know, realistically, uh, we're not necessarily expecting them to even announce the Mac Pro in June. I think they've got to, but even like the rumors don't say they're going to do it. Uh, and so, but even if it was announced, in, you know, like announced in June at WWDC, it's probably not going to ship to the end of the year anyway. So there yeah. probably will be a period where you have like you know m2 and m3 stuff overlapping in a significant way but i don't think apple really cares like they ship the products they're ready and people buy them you know like it's it, obviously they try and make the numbers sequential and match up but if you know supply chain delays production delays you know those things are unavoidable and, and they're not gonna like hold back the m3 stuff just because one model of the m2 they've been trying to get out of the door isn't ready right isn't ready yet for instance um, like what we see what they're going to do in June with the 15 inch MacBook Air like it's kind of weird that this is going to be a year after the 13 inch even though it's exactly the same with the 2 inch bigger screen but sometimes that's just how the logistics work out mm-hmm. and then Quo had a little tidbit story basically saying that although this year for the iPhone 15 only the Pro Max will be getting the periscope lens which will give additional optical zoom as everybody's been expecting for a while he says that next year the 16 um on the 16 generation the regular iphone 16 pro so not the 6.7 inch size the you know the standard what we know now is 6.1 inches uh, will get the periscope lens and this actually gives some context to the rumor we covered last week on the show about the screen sizes getting slightly bigger in that generation up from 6.1 and 6.7 to maybe 6.2 6.3 6.8 6.9 and quo says the reason for the casing getting slightly bigger um, is not just to give you an extra 0.1 inches of screen size it's actually to make room so they can offer the bigger camera sensors across the board and so for the iphone 16 the camera should realign because it kind of like flip-flop some years the pro max camera is identical to the pro camera and other years it's like a head um you know like it got the 3x zoom before the pro did but then the year after that everything got the 3x zoom um and it seems like that's what we're going to go head into again so this fall we'll get the periscope zoom on the max model and then people who like the smaller form factor size like me will have to wait another year another generation round for it to be available on the pro that's just making, interesting because it gives context to the why they just randomly making the screens, you know, a point one inch bigger again. And especially if they make the screen on the Pro Max bigger, the periscope lens could theoretically get better, or it just gives them more internal space for bigger battery or other other system components that they might want to add. Is the sixteen rumored to get um under screen face ID? That's right, right? I think so, based on yeah. the current the current rumors, but that seems a little bit more un- unconfirmed than yeah. the Periscope But that might also be another reason why they have to change the sizing a bit, just to work out the internals and move it around. And there's, there's also been some speculation that the underscreen face ID and eventually maybe the return of Touch ID would be a lot easier once they switch to micro-LED displays. Mm-hmm. because of the thinness of those displays compared to to the current OLED screens. Yeah, the there was a report out today from uh, Nikkei, Nikkei Asia, that basically said Apple is, um, you know, has invested billions into production of micro-LED panels, um, first coming to the Apple Watch in 2025 because the Apple Watch is, you know, two inches big, so it's a lot easier to make brand new technology screens, which are a lot smaller, and then the the idea is to eventually ship them on the iPhone, but that's still you know five years away minimum. Um, so I think they're probably going to uh, like I think if they wanted to bring Touch ID back, it's probably going to have to come back before then. But then the mm-hmm. Micro LED iPhone would just like be a better version of the underscreen fingerprint, for instance, uh, because there'd just be like more gaps. Because the the whole point is the Micro LED stuff, all the chips are tiny, so there's actually room next to the chip to actually put other substrates another another tech right. um but obviously you know no, no nobody's shipping macro did today and there's plenty of android phones that have underscreen fingerprint recognition at this point so it's not like that's the hold up necessarily um but maybe when that comes around they'll be able to um make an even higher resolution fingerprint sensor maybe the fingerprint sensor can cover the whole display not just like the bottom third and maybe it's thin and small enough such that on like an apple watch they could put underscreen fingerprint recognition um, on the Apple Watch display because, you know, from the space savings they get. Plus all the other um, improvements in terms of, like, you know, visual fidelity of the pit of the screen itself mm-hmm. with, like, OLED light contrast ratios but without the burn-in issues, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, so on yeah, the that's, underscreen, that's a pipe dream away, kind of. Right, and on the underscreen touch ID, I mean, do you think it's even something that people care about? Let alone something that Apple thinks is worth the uh, engineering and the added cost. And because Face ID has gotten so good, I I used to be someone who really wanted underscreen touch ID, but nowadays I don't even really think about it. Yeah, I mean, in a perfect world, I think it's better to have both than mm-hmm. only one. Um, and it wouldn't be like a you have to use both to unlock. It would just be like an either-or. Like if it unlocks via fingerprint, it's already there. Or if it's unlocking via face, it's already there. But I don't feel the um, pressing need for it. There was definitely a time like, you know, in the height of the pandemic situation yeah. where it was like, this stuff is, you know, a real big setback for them. And then they ended up shipping like the Face ID with mask support, like, you know, almost at the end of the uh, end of the tail of that. Um, but of course, that still remains relevant in certain situations. Um, around the world especially in some cultures where masks are more relevant anyway uh, but you know as it stands today in you know the west or, uh, or whatever it doesn't feel like there's a burning need to bring back touch ID I don't feel like I'm, when I hear people out in the world they're like I wish my phone could unlock my fingerprint again like I think most people are, are, are pretty accustomed to face at this point and it has you know it's a lot more elegant although mm-hmm. Saying that, it does have the burden of having to have the big hole in the middle of the screen at the top. Like, you know, you look at Android phones today, they've all of the high-end phones have transitioned to on-screen fingerprint recognition, and that means they don't have to have a cutout for it. Whereas, And so they only have, like, the one hole for the, cam- for the front camera, whereas you look at what Apple's had to do with the iPhone, they've had to, like, make it a feature with the dynamic eye and to have that big pill cutout at the top. Um, and so, you know, these choices and decisions, right? That's, that's, that's what design is. Uh, but I'm pretty happy with Face ID as it stands. I'm just kind of waiting for them to hurry up and put it on, like, the Mac, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's the bigger hole, is the yeah. Mac, for sure. Because I hate every day. Like, I love this MacBook Pro, M1, M1 Max MacBook Pro. It's fantastic. But you open it up, what do you see staring at you at the top? A massive notch, way <laughs> bigger than what's on the iPhone, way bigger than what's on the iPad, and it cuts into the screen, and all it does is give you a pretty mediocre webcam. It's like, there's so much space there for them to, I don't know, put a face ID in there somewhere. But people are going to say it's depth rather than width, I know. But why is the notch that wide in that <laughs> case then? Uh, but that's just an ongoing that's an ongoing complaint. But yeah, um, optical zoom for the 16... Like, that's kind of... Obviously, we're all, we've all been um, optimized at this point to know that the 15 Pro non-Max wasn't going to get Periscope. But... The idea that, oh, the screens are getting a little bigger to help Apple have the internal space to put Periscope on the Pro in 16 uh, makes a lot of sense. Because last week I was like, why are they bothering making it 0.1 inch bigger? But here's a decent justification. And that's probably the gen... I'm not sure I'm going to upgrade this year because I don't Mm -hmm. like the max size. And so the draw of the optical zoom, even if it's fantastic, is like way too big. Uh, So maybe that'll be what, you know, tips the hand for the 2024 year. So the switch to USB-C is not going to be enough to get you to go 14 no. Pro to 15 Pro? No. Why? Why? Yeah. <laughs> like, it's great that they're doing it, but I don't have the need for fast data transfer out. Right. Um, which is definitely going to be the way Apple spins it. They're going to be like, Pro customers love to make 4K video and blah, 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 and we can export it really fast now, just like the iPad can, um, even though it's coming to the non-Pro models as well. Um, and I think it's what they should have done three years ago, you know, do USB-C then. Uh, but I bought the 14 Pro knowing that the 15 was going to go USB-C only, right? And that didn't stop me right. holding off. Because I, I still have loads of lightning cables around. And what I think what's going to be really fascinating is this fall, the tech community is going to welcome the USB-C transition. And the normal population is probably going to reject it or at least have a lot of consternation about it. Just like what we saw with the transition from 30-pin to lightning in the first yep, place. Yeah, exactly. Like, like this time it's slightly more palatable because you can say well apple's switching to the open standard you know like it's not a proprietary it's not another proprietary connector this is the standard and it's also what's used on the laptops and the and their ipad and every android phone in the world at this point but there's still going to be headlines after headlines the iphone's changing connected the iphone's changing port you need to buy new cables blah, 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 blah. so that'll be um interesting to watch and in a way it doesn't help that this comes right after apple switched back to magsafe as the default on the macbook so everybody that's bought an M2 MacBook Air, for instance, a couple of years ago, that would have come with the USB-C cable in the box, but now yes. it doesn't. <laughs> it comes with a MagSafe cable in the box. So the argument that it's the same cable you use to charge your laptop depends on what laptop you use and how recent you bought it. 
Yeah, I mean, I actually still charge my laptop with USB-C via yeah, the Thunderbolt too. dock because mm-hmm. you get the Thunderbolt dock, so you get one cable. Um, obviously, it has MagSafe too, which I've used when I'm traveling. I tend to take the yep. MagSafe uh, connector for traveling just because you get the convenience and you get the magnetic you know, detachment if someone else knocks you. Uh, but day-to-day, I still plug in with the USB-C port for the Thunderbolt dock. And the, the one I wrote about this a few months ago, and people kind of got mad at me. But it, my argument was basically like the first few months or even first year of a USB-C iPhone is going to just be really messy, both for that reason. And when you think about the prevalence of AirPods, which are by all indications still going to charge with lightning, at least for a bit longer. So that's I think, two I think cables. the idea is they might ship a charge, a, 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 a USB-C case this fall, like alongside right. the iPhone. I guess then... The, but you have to buy it, obviously. Yeah, exactly. Then yeah. that's going to be people's complaint. Yeah. So that's why it's even weirder that you, AirPods Pro 2 used Lightning in the first place. They Those should have had USB-C for charging from the get-go. Do you think Apple's going to make an adapter? A, you <laughs> plug in a Lightning a lightning cable and it puts USB-C out the other, other side? Oh, I guess maybe. they already have one, right? Uh, do they? That... They might do with the iPad. I, I might be making that up. But if there's an opportunity for them to make a $19 dongle, they'll do it. So yeah. <laughs> that's... I, do, I don't think it's going to be in the box this time, though. No. Like they did, like they did originally for 30 pin to Lightning. Happy Hour This Week is brought to you by FastGrowingTrees.com. Breathe some life into your own backyard with FastGrowingTrees.com this spring. Trees are a great way to add some privacy and shade to your home, while also looking great, showing off the beauty of nature. Let FastGrowingTrees.com help you plant your dream garden with their expert advice and fast shipping. Go to FastGrowingTrees.com slash happy hour now to get 15% off your entire order. Their plant experts curate thousands of easy-to-grow plants, shrub, and tree varieties for your climate. Knowing what to plant can be daunting. It's hard to know what is best for your particular climate and soil. But no need to worry, fastgrowingtrees.com gives you customized recommendation based on your specific needs. And no more waiting in long lines to haul heavy plants home from the garden center. With fastgrowingtrees.com, you order online and your plants arrive at your door in just a few days' time. Now, Zach, I know you've received some plants from Fastgrowing Trees, so I'm curious to hear what you got and how they look. Sure, yeah, I got two plants from fastgrowingtrees.com. The fiddle leaf fig tree which is really, really pretty, and I'm amazed that this thing can come in a box and look as good as it does. Uh, kind of re- remarkable. And um, I've had it for a few weeks now, and it just keeps getting taller and taller. And, uh, I mean, first and foremost, I was surprised at how mature of a plant it was when it first uh, arrived at my door. And um, it's it's beautiful. It gets a lot of compliments when people come by. And uh, other thing I have is an Eureka palm, and um, it's it's doing well, you know, also, so... Uh, these things look great and highly recommend uh, fast-growing trees. Join over 1.5 million happy fast-growing trees customers. Go to fastgrowingtrees.com slash happy hour now to get 15% off your entire order. Get 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com slash happy hour. Thanks to Fast Growing Trees for sponsoring the show. Now, Apple actually kind of released a new product this week. Well, their subsidiary uh, Beats did with the Beats Studio Buds Plus. Uh, and Chance, you got some hands-on time with these, right? Yeah, the Beats Studio Buds Plus, they're the follow-up to the Beats Studio Buds that were two years ago. And the pitch basically is that they offer better noise cancellation. Beats says up to two times better. Two times better transparency and 1.6 times better ANC, which they do definitely sound better but they still don't compare to the noise cancellation of AirPods Pro 2. And the transparency mode, you don't get adaptive transparency mode like AirPods Pro 2. So they're still behind AirPods Pro, but they're also $80 cheaper. So that makes them a far more compelling option to people who are looking to get truly wireless in-ear earbuds than, than AirPods Pro. But one of the limitations, and this was a limitation with the original Beats Studio Buds 2, is they don't use one of Apple's audio chips. So they don't use like the H2 audio chip that AirPods Pro use. They feature a custom-designed Beats chip. So this makes for like better compatibility with Android devices. 
but it also means that Apple users miss out on some of the exclusive features of the H2 chip. So that's things like automatic device switching, uh, audio sharing, personalized spatial audio, things like that. So if those are features that you care about, then you basically have to opt for either one of Beats products with an Apple chip inside or just AirPods themselves. They they don't have the in-ear detection, right, either side? So like yes, that too. They don't play or pause. Yeah, that's the yeah. biggest one, too, in my testing. I just miss that, like taking yeah. one earbud out and not and it keep, just keeps going and that would like that make that makes airpods so much more nice to use like if yeah. that wasn't there it'd be so annoying i don't understand why that has to be like mutually exclusive though like why could they there's plenty of other head earbuds yeah. on that have in-ear detection that don't use apple's chip but even even without like like that's uh, like table stakes i'd say but why can't they have like both the apple chip and the other chip the other kind of yeah. chip like why can't the Beats chip also support pairing your device with iCloud and, you know, audio sharing and spatial audio and everything else? Like, I don't really see why those have to be cut off when plenty of other Beats products support it. But I'm guessing these part of it is probably price. Because at 100 I mean, $170 for these is $20 more than the first-gen Studio Buds. So there definitely probably was room to add something other than the improved ANC and transparency mode because those are basically the only two changes other than Beats and, says, and don't they support um, the the like the Android um, pairing yeah. syncing thing so they support, so they support like, the, the Android one but not the Apple one yeah they, including automatic device switching and there's even a on Android there's a dedicated Beats app so it supports that and that's actually how you go and you update the firmware for the headphones. Unlike on iOS where you basically hope and pray that your earbuds get an update at some point whenever Apple releases one. Yeah, that feels kind of rough. Like, I, these really are targeted Android phones more than anything then. Yeah, like, exactly. Which, I mean, it's a they, nice option they, to have I think, they look, I think they look really nice. Like, in many ways, they have a better design than the AirPods do because the AirPods have stems and these don't. So, like, they're a lot smaller and more discreet. And with this lack of stems, you do lose a couple of, like, gesture controls, like the mm. the volume controls that AirPods Pro 2 offer. But you can still, like, single press on the side to play and pause, double press to skip. So there's still some physical control options just not volume controls mainly yeah the lack of the iCloud integration I don't know it just feels it, you, part of some arguments I've heard people say is that you have to wonder if there's some sort of dichotomy between what Beats is allowed to do to not cannibalize AirPod sales so Apple probably has some sort of say in we will give you the H2 chip for this product, but not this product. Or, I mean, Apple has ultimately has complete control, and they can say AirPods Pro 2 are $250. You can't undercut us and offer everything for $170, you know? I, I, that just, I, well, that's true, but, like, that seems stupid. <laughs> I mean, it's Apple. You mean? Yeah, I know, I know. Like, there's always this weird tension between the Apple side and the Beat subsidiary, but yeah. like the pa- and the pairing thing. And like, I'm reading the the release notes. It does say you get one touch pairing with every device on iCloud account. So maybe that is there in some way, even though they're not using the Apple chip. Yeah, that is there. I I yeah. missed that when I first tried them because so it like requires... it's a weird it's a weird mixture. Yeah. It's, it the de- thing that it's really stands out as being, as being terrible is the lack of in-ear detection. Like, yeah. Even cheap, truly wireless earbuds have that these days, and it's such a useful part of the experience. So the fact that that's not there is a big big negative, unfortunately. The Beats um, Fit Pro, which are their in-ears that have the smaller ear hook, so the hook goes like inside your ear, sort of. Those have the H1 chip. So and so they do offer I think pretty much everything that at least the first generation AirPods Pro had. So that is in-ear detection and 
automatic device switching and all of that. So that's the option, but lots of people don't like that ear hook. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it has a new color, right? This year, yes the the, the Studio Buds Plus have a transparent option, so you basically can see through the case and each individual earbud, which it's a pretty cool design. I mean, it makes you wish Apple did something other than white. Yep. Yeah. We we like begging Apple just to do like a black version of AirPods. Meanwhile, Beats have every color under the sun. The I mean, at this point, you have to think that it's a deliberate decision by Apple. Yeah, I don't like it though. It's like the iconic white AirPods, but AirPods. We even saw that ad last year that kind of replicated the some of the early iPod ads where it was the silhouettes and you could just clearly see the white AirPods in their ears. Yeah, like, the thing about that, though, is like, I almost think it highlights the discrepancy. Like, back then, you could argue for Apple needing the distinctive brand. Like, mm-hmm. and the white earbuds were definitely that. And they, like, imprinted, you know, the Apple's brand literally in culture. Um, and that made the iPod, what was one of the things that made the iPod so successful. But, you know, that was 20 years ago. These days, Apple is huge and ginormous. And... They don't need to rely on like color identification or like owning the color white uh, to to stand out. I mean, I mean that's in what many you ways think, but... they don't really use. They don't really stand out with white. Like, in other I don't know areas. if you see a white somebody wearing white, completely wireless earbuds, they're pretty much going to be AirPods. Whereas if you yeah, see if somebody you had wearing black, black ones, people would know their AirPods too. You know? Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I don't feel like the brand you the standing out is like a a huge factor anymore like maybe if you wanted to make an argument for like the first gen airpods or something but like that's true this many years down the line apple is the trillion dollar company that they are they can advertise airpods in any color and people would buy them on mass like I'd, and it just, so it just feels like you're just kind of hurting the customer base so like i still buy the airpods even though they are white but i'm like i wish they'd be black instead you know but something that's else that's interesting is the rumors of the new solo pro beats mm. I don't know if you guys talked about that last week, but... No, I don't think we did, actually. I think it was... So this would be an upgrade to the Solo 3, which are Beats over-ear AirPods Max-style headphones. And it would be the first new over-ear headphones from Beats in, like, four or five years. So those will be interesting to see, because that could be another way to compare Beats versus Apple's comparative AirPods option. Well, at this point, AirPods Max are two and a half years old, so. Yeah, I was actually listening to, because um, I didn't buy AirPods Max, uh, so I don't have them, mainly because I thought they were too expensive for what they are, yeah. and I knew I wasn't going to wear them outside of the home because they're just so heavy or whatever, and mm-hmm. I like the ability to just slip AirPods in my um, like jeans pocket. Like That's a really useful thing, and obviously AirPods Max are huge, so they would have to sound like unbelievable but when i'm at home i have home pods around me or whatever to give me that so, right so it kind of eliminated the point um but i've been thinking you know maybe if the price comes in a little bit maybe if the features improve or whatever and you know it's not just like new colorways or whatever but like you know a meaningful step forward because at this point you, you're an idiot if you buy airpods max i feel like um you know unless you're like desperate because yeah, they have they're so old they're missing features you know they just they just feel dated um uh, so I've been like watching the rumors for when the second gen maybe will exist. And on um, Mark Gurman did like a Twitter space oh, yeah. thing, yeah. Mm-hmm. And he, someone actually asked about AirPods Max, and he said that he believes this, he believes the colors were in development, and then uh, COVID kind of disrupted them. So maybe they just got left on the cutting room floor while they prioritized other products to get out the door. And so you know those like rumors of new colors never materialized Mm -hmm. but he did say that they are working on second generation maybe for like 2025-2026 kind of time frame Uh, so apparently they haven't given up on the product but yeah obviously it's a while away 2025 or 2026 would be five or six years after they were announced Mm -hmm. I mean I guess the AirPods Max do have the two H1 chips in either ear cup so that does help slightly I guess since they don't have the newest what is it W2 or whatever h3 is it i can't even remember what it's called I, anymore. yeah yeah i think but it's h3 <laughs> h3 that makes sense yeah totally but one of the things too that because i do have airpods max and I, I i like them i like i work in like a shared office space so i can't really have like home pods going at full blast mm. 
So AirPods Max are a good option to kind of just put them on and zone out and get. I mean, they do sound great, so so they got that going for them. But but anyway, one of the things I really miss is the U1 chip inside, yes. which the AirPods Pro 2 have. Like AirPods Max costs what five hundred and fifty dollars and. A lot harder to find if you lose them or leave them behind somewhere. Oh, and they have that stupid case. Yeah, that's oh, the yeah. other reason I did buy them. <laughs> that case is I wanted is like a, a proper case, yeah. Traveling with that, like trying to fit it in my laptop bag, it adds so so much bulk. Takes up so much space. And they don't it's... have wireless charging. Like, um, I wish, like the whole the whole appeal of like AirPods, like you have the charging case, which is like really cool, and they just slip in and they, and they charge, yep. like... The AirPods Max, you just have to plug in with lightning. and it's. Like, I feel like they could have made like a desk stand that you like put the AirPods Max on and it charges yeah. it or something. But So that's the kind of thing I'm hoping that they rev in, you know, the second generation uh, to at least justify the price that they charge for them. Um, Which wi- wireless charging is another thing that none of the Beats wireless earbuds have. Mm, which it, they do point. have, these do have USB-C, which is nice, but but no wireless charging. So, would you recommend these to anybody? I don't know. If it, studio buds, I, it's hard. But if you do have a reason to use them with an Android device, or then they're probably the, one of the better options out there. But right now, when they're still only selling for a hundred and seventy dollars, they're harder to recommend. But I mean, but in six months' time, like every Beats product, you'll be able to get them for. Probably closer to 140, and at that yeah, point, one, 130, 140 kind of range by Christmas. At that probably. point, they're a much yeah. easier recommendation. Yeah, and they do have the design. I, I I don't love the transparent ones, but like the plain color ones, I do kind of think look better than like AirPods Pro because you don't have the stems. Um, yeah, the la- that's they, another thing. I just wish they had in ear detection. That's like the biggest thing that sticks out to me as a negative. Yeah. And even for some people who like, like AirPods Pro 2 comfort is. It's pretty universal. Most people like it, but AirPods, what is it? AirPods three, three, I think. Yeah, third generation. Those still, f- the fit on those is more debated. So, mm-hmm. if you want something that has that in-ear design, then then these are the probably the best option if you're looking to shop from Apple or Beats right now. Happy Hour this week is also brought to you by Zocdoc. We've all been there, feeling unwell, and randomly Googling online trying to find a cause for some symptoms that we've been having. You end up stumbling down a rabbit hole of quote-unquote advice from so-called experts. Well, there are better ways to get the answers that you want from trusted professionals, not random people on the internet, and that's ZocDoc. ZocDoc helps you find expert doctors and medical professionals that specialize in the care that you need. ZocDoc is the only free app that lets you find and book doctors who are patient-reviewed, take your insurance, are available when you need them and treat almost every condition under the sun. Go to zocdoc.com slash happy hour to get the app and sign up for free. You can book an appointment with a qualified doctor with ease. Find the right doctor in your neighborhood that meets your needs, takes your insurance and fits in with your schedule. Feel confident by reading the verified patient reviews. Then book an appointment in just a few taps and start feeling better faster using the free app that millions of users are relying on. So, Go to ZocDoc.com slash happy hour and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. Many are available within 24 hours. Once again, that's ZocDoc.com slash happy hour. Z-O-C-D-O-C.com slash happy hour. Thanks to ZocDoc for sponsoring the show. All right, Apple continued its slew of press releases this week as we run up to wwc on june 5th um last week we obviously had the pride band stuff and the final cut and logic announcement for ipad which was cool and this week they kicked it off with a preview of accessibility features that they just say are coming later this year but obviously these come alongside ios 17 that isn't officially announced yet so that's why they don't mention it um, they do this every single year timed around like world accessibility day and whatnot and now it's no exception uh, this year, they kind of focused on, I'd say, like three big features and then like a laundry list at the bottom of, you know, various little improvements. But the big headline one that looks, uh, you know, just visually the most enticing because it has the most visuals to it is a, something called assistive access. And this is almost like an alternative UI for the iPhone. So like 
presumably you go into settings somewhere and you turn off this assistive access mode and it basically converts your home screen and key apps into a completely different layout that are super stripped down super simplified and designed for you know either people with um you know explicit disabilities in terms of being able to maybe see the screen or maybe you're just um you know degenerative matters in general and like you know i have a grandpa who is supposedly you know in perfectly fit health or whatever but he's you know 80 80 something years old and technology is still quite alien and even just his fingers are so big that you know using a touchscreen is quite difficult like he'll accidentally press the wrong button and so for someone like him this kind of ui is almost you know optimized for that case it's like you can still do the core things people want to do on a phone um and especially older people who don't care about like you know all the social media apps and stuff as much but the basics of calling and texting and looking at photos and using the camera are all there but expressed in a really streamlined and simplified way that makes it hard to mess up right hard to do wrong uh i think it looks really cool and pretty amazing yeah no it's it's gonna be a game changer for a lot of people i think when we found evidence that apple was working on this probably like six months ago it was mm-hmm. interesting they referred to it as custom accessibility mode which i do think and the visuals that we saw at the time matched up with pretty much exactly what they showed in their press release on tuesday i do wonder if there's any plans to expand to other apps like i can imagine some third-party apps wanting to tap into this and maybe even some of other Apple's default apps. But for right now, I think it's just music, calls, messages, photos, and camera. So my understanding is that third-party apps can be shown in the in the grid, but they don't have any UI changes. So the only thing that's different is like... Ah, okay. So like if you, if you, if you see how all of the Apple apps have like a big back button at the bottom, um, that mm-hmm. is basically the equivalent of swiping up to go home, right? Or if you're obviously uh, if you're yeah. like drilling down, it would take you back. But what they do for a third-party app is it kind of just, like, shrinks the app down to only be in that region above. So the big back button's always there at the bottom. And so the third-party app's just, you know, transplanted in, like, a little window above, and but without any other UI changes. So, you know, the same toolbars and navigation and everything. Um, and so you can, if you add a third-party app to this assistive access, like, home screen layout, you can click on it, and it will show you the app, and you can use it with a big back button at the bottom. But the actual mm-hmm. UI isn't otherwise different. I presume stuff mm-hmm. like text size and stuff has changed because it's like normal dynamic type stuff. But yeah, right. I agree. In time, it would be nice if there are APIs so you can get the look that the, the Apple apps have. Because like the the music app they show, you know, it has really big navigation bar at the bottom, at the top with just a huge title and none of the like standard Chrome and just a big pause button and then massive tiles, one for each album or whatever that you can clearly click on. And I don't know if even like a third party app would even be able to tell if they're in assistive access mode or not. Maybe like, because yeah. like the way the UI is laid out, a third party developer could make their app look like that, I guess, if they really wanted to. But if the app can't know that you're in assistive access mode, then it's kind of irrelevant. Um, and then there's some other customizations that go beyond just like how the stuff's laid out, because like they have a special keyboard that you see in the messages example. Um, in the example they have, they have like a special emoji keyboard, which only has three buttons per row, and that takes up like a big part of the screen. Um, that obviously wouldn't be available necessarily. Um, so yeah, may- maybe the APIs do exist, and they're just going to wait till WWC to tell people about that That's part true. of it. Yeah. One Apple app I think that would be good for this type of interface would be the Home app. Especially, I think eventually, if not already, smart smart home stuff can have a real big impact on people who maybe lack fine motor skills or general mobility so having a version of the home app that was like just showed like the most like a, a configurable interface of the most used smart accessories for mm-hmm. that person that would be that would be pretty useful i know the so i was just thinking what, what like my grandpa's use case and mm-hmm. he uses texting phone calling he doesn't do music he does do camera and photos and then i'd say the other thing he does look at on the on his phone is weather oh yeah he likes checking That's the weather one. on it uh, and there doesn't seem to be weather support yet but even if there isn't a third-party api you can imagine you know ios 17.1 some other apps come on board or ios 7.2 yeah. some other apps come on board and then maybe next year they do like ios 18 cycle they add a like explicit api for it and whatnot uh this but, is definitely know, the perfect collection of apps for version one yeah exactly 
And it's really interesting that they um, ha- that you don't even have a phone app. You have a calls app because yeah. they combine FaceTime and phone calling together into a single application, which immediately begs the question, why don't they do that for normal users too in the normal home screen experience? Yeah. <laughs> because FaceTime app is very redundant on the iPhone. Uh, you can just do it all through the phone app. But like that comes from a heritage because originally they had to do a separate app for the iPod and the iPod Touch oh, yeah. and the iPad, yeah. and that's how it's continued on to this point. Uh, but if they they explained in the story that they unified it into this single calls app, I was like immediately that yeah that makes sense for this, but it also makes a lot of sense for um, the standard iPhone experience too. So maybe they'll think about that in future as well, especially if they ever intend on adding like voicemail support for FaceTime, which mm-hmm. I know is something people really want. Especially yeah, sure. like video voicemails, like distilling all of that would make sense into the existing phone app interface. And so that's assistive access. Uh, second, they kind of highlight something called live speech and personal voice. So with live speech, you this is for people that have, um, you know, that can't talk on their own or have struggled speaking. And so what they're doing is they're letting you. Uh, basically type in and do speech to text so you type and then it speaks out to the other person so you could be on FaceTime with someone and you can type your response and then the phone will speak out to make it like a more natural conversation and they have like a built in uh, stock of phrases of like common things so you can just immediately do that instead of type every single query out yourself um, which is a nice feature but what really elevates this to another level is the personal voice aspect so if you are somebody who or you know someone who is maybe at risk of losing the ability to speak, uh, in advance you can go through this process to, and you basically have to like read out these text prompts and the phone listens to you, and then it makes a model of your voice um, so that in the future you can lo- you can use the live voice feature, but instead of it being one of the Apple synthesized voices, it sounds like you is, is the idea, which I think is really, really cool. Yeah, the personal voice thing is... It's pretty incredible when you think about it only takes 15 minutes to set up. Then it synthesizes to make a voice that sounds like you or that person. Then you can opt in to have it synced across your other iCloud devices with end-to-end encryption. And then different than some of the other voice synthesis AI things that are out there right now, all of the processing of those samples that you recorded for apple that's all done on device there's no cloud component whatsoever so the fact that apple is not only just doing a personal voice feature like this but still trying to step around some of the potential privacy concerns that people have with this technology it's it's pretty incredible yeah and you said it takes 15 minutes i think the you have to record 15 minutes of audio yeah, but I do right. think it actually takes longer. So, like, after you've read all the phrases, uh, and so you've got your 15 minutes of audio recording, the phone will, like, sit there and mm-hmm. process it all um, because it's happening on device. It, it will, like, contact the neural engine or whatever on the phone and, you know, do whatever magic it's doing. And then maybe in, like, a few hours later or whatever, it's like, now your voice is ready to use, et cetera, et cetera. Right. The um, thing I was just saying, too, for, like, the person recording it who might be hesitant to want to spend the time on it it only Mm. takes 15 minutes of their time and especially if they have some have endurance problems or something to that sort like distilling it all down to 15 minutes for the user is is and then creating a voice for that user with just 15 minutes of audio is is impressive yeah for sure for sure and like you say there are some other services that um are doing this kind of thing online but it's all cloud-based and you have to pay for it and you know it's not integrated into the thing you actually use which is your phone so you know apple doing it this way is is really fantastic the the live speech thing too that's something where there's also existing third-party apps so like when my mom was sick um she used an app called vocable which it actually had built-in head tracking so you would just she would just move her head to type on the the system like a special much larger version of the keyboard so that like was like a spatial keyboard kind of thing yeah yeah and it i'm curious cuz iOS has some head tracking accessibility features built in mm-hmm. but i'm curious if they're going to do anything special to integrate with 
this live speech thing. Because for a lot of people, the mobility for typing is a big problem too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I can imagine that the auto, the stuff they already have in for the head tracking stuff, the accessibility probably does work in the same way it works with the rest of the operating system. So like mm-hmm. you'd be able to go to the phrase book for live speech and like you know, yeah. nod your head down to select it or whatever. Um, so it should integrate quite nicely, you'd hope. Um, and I know you can buy like, you know, like those um, dedicated like switch control things for people who get yeah. out of low mobility. So, you know, you don't have to even move your head. You just press like one finger clicking to like move between items and, and whatnot. And so. they have even technology now for like eye tracking, which again, if iOS has a way to integrate all of that. And so I think it, like there's a bigger picture here where I'd like to see Apple kind of talk more rather than just the actual process of typing than having it spoken out but mm-hmm. but this good again start. like yeah a good start yeah and then the personal voice thing too i think i mentioned this in my coverage of it it's almost i think anybody who basically anybody once this launches should probably go in and do it because like one of the the things apple calls out in their press release is als but like in my mom's case when she actually got diagnosed with als her voice was already gone yeah cuz when you start losing your voice it can go so quickly and a lot of people like including my mom if their voice is even slightly different than it used to be they're not going to want to do this yeah that's a fair point so i think you have, to, you have to do it proactively yeah right and that's why I think most people, like, I, I know I'm going to do this as soon as it comes out just to have it in case you ever need it. Yeah, I'll, I'll do it for the, that's going to sound really bad, but for the fun of it, you know, like, yeah, I'll no. try it out, obviously, but obviously it has, you know, legitimate cases for a lot of people. Um, and then, finally, the other big thing they mentioned was this um, point and speak feature, which integrates into the Magnifier app. The Magnifier app is something that isn't available on the iPhone as standard, but once you start using the accessibility features, you can like turn it on and it like appears on the home screen like any other app. Um, or you believe you can spotlight search for it at any time. Um, and it has all sorts of like you know stuff aimed at vision disability. So you can you know originally it was literally just a magnifier, so you just zoom in and it just zooms the camera in close. But they added like. Um, you know, warnings for opening doors or door closing. It announces what's around you in your environment. And they're kind of building that this year with point and speak. And so the idea of this feature is um, if you can't see in the real world, like you can't um, read properly because of, you know, an eye disability or impairment or whatever, the phone will be constantly scanning what it sees through the magnifier, looking for text. And then where you click on the screen, it will be able to read out what's underneath what you click on. So rather than just reading out everything it sees on the screen at once, which might not make a, a lot of sense, like their example is they're pointing at a microwave and you know you can take a picture of a microwave and it can read everything out that it can OCR, but the buttons of a microwave aren't like laid out in a logical order or anything. So it'd just be like nine, two, stop, freeze, defrost, five, six, three, three, four. Whereas the, the real innovation here is that each bit of text that it's detecting it also is storing the location information. So where you put your finger down, it can tell you exactly what that specific button is. So then you know, oh, that one's the defrost button, that one's the cook time, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, this is cool. And this is, I think of any of these announcements, it's the best example of something that Apple's clearly kind of dogfooding with accessibility. And it with the headset, it's, there's clearly other ways we're going to see this technology implemented. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And one thing that's always annoying about the magnifier, um, you know, I'm, I don't have to use it yet because I'm still young, but I'm known delusion as you get older, your eyesight gets worse and worse and worse, um, is that you have to like, this is something where I feel like they should fix it on, like obviously the lock screen is customizable in many ways, but one thing you can't do is change those buttons at the bottom left and the bottom right. And I'm like, I wish they just make it so you could put like the magnifier instead of the camera yeah. button, for instance. And that would obviously apply universally. Like I'd love to put a different app there instead of camera too. But uh, in, in this case, it really highlights it. It's like the magnifier is something you want so often that you really want to be able to like quickly launch it directly from the lock screen. And right now they don't really offer you a way to do that. One thing, jumping back to the live speech thing mm-hmm. that I kind of wanted to get your thought on is one of the kind of tinfoil hat conspiracy theories is that this is going to be misused for scams and and i'm curious what you think because my opinion on it's definitely biased just because i know how useful it can be 
how would it be used for a scam? It's that's what I don't fully understand. Is if they have a model, what th- what those people are saying is that if your phone has a model of your voice and somebody gains access to that model of your voice, they can use it to trick your bank or right. trick some anybody really. Okay, well, under those exact circumstances, they're probably correct. But if they've got access to your phone to do that, you've got bigger problems. Right, exactly. That's that was my read yeah. on it too, and and, and the it, whole the whole issue of people impersonating other people based on synthesized AI voices uh, will exist, whether this feature exists or not, on the phone. Because, like you mm-hmm. said, you can do it online, and you know. The last couple of weeks, Zach has been making artificial voices in the yeah. based on the podcast recordings, right? And, you know, he was just doing it for a laugh, and it's funny, but obviously you could use that in a sinister way too. Um, I don't think the iPhone feature it existing on the iPhone really adds any more danger to that situation that already exists, right? And you have to read so many phrases, like the iPhone version is... Like, some of the AI voices services you can do on the web, you only need, like, two minutes of audio to make a mm-hmm. somewhat resembling voice. Uh, the iPhone feature is going to need a lot more phrases, et cetera, et cetera. And you need physical access to the device. Like, I guess if, if you could, like, make a fake voice by, like, holding someone else's phone near you surreptitiously and make them say a couple of phrases, then I guess you'd have a copy of their voice. But the example phrases that, that they gave are so forever. specific. Yeah, yeah, it's such a specific phrases. And I think if you if you are trying to do that kind of trickery, you just use one of the voice services that exist yeah. online that don't require exact phrases to be read out and they don't even require that much audio for them to do it. So I don't really get get what those people are trying to say. Then. No, then there were, there, that's what I tried to explain to you. There's just, it was a much more common, I guess, quote unquote, conspiracy theory than, than I would have expected. But it seems like, I mean, knowing Apple and how they do things they've thought through that they're not they're not just launching this into the world without considering the potential for abuse yeah and they i think they even say in the story that it's stored isn't it like stored on the secure enclave or something i swear they said they mentioned something about the the privacy and the security of it or something where Mm. it's not like your voice profile is just imminently available yeah and again you have to even opt in to having the voice profile synced across your own iCloud devices, and it can only be done through end-to-end encryption. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, uh, I, I think tinfoil uh, hat theory is a good description of that. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, anything else you wanted to highlight on the accessibility stuff? Uh, no, I think we covered it. It's just, it's this is the type of stuff from Apple that really. I think sets them apart and it's very it's very cool to see. Yeah, the only thing I'll note which isn't directly related to the accessibility angle is that some people spotted that if you look at the they have a screenshot here of a Mac because they have some Mac features where like made for iPhone hearing devices supporting the Mac and dynamic text size is apparently coming to the Mac too. Um mm-hmm. and they have a screenshot of the system preferences window for it in this press release and at the very top it actually has a slightly different layout to what we have publicly right now. Uh, very, very minor in the sense that instead of having one back button, there's a back and forward button. Um, so for oh. all the people last year who were bemoaning about system preference, system settings being terrible, uh, I don't know if this is good news or bad news because although yeah, it looks like it's slightly different, the most of the app looks identical. So uh, take from that what you will in terms of macOS 13. <laughs> I, what would a forward button even add? Well, I guess it's like a browser, right? Where if you've gone forward oh, and you go back, yeah. you can go forward again, right? That's, that's the not, idea. That's not my problem with system settings. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, but for all we know, this might just be like a Photoshop mock-up rather than anything yeah. legitimate. But we'll find out in a couple of weeks. Is the dynamic, is the text size stuff, How ex- is that going to work with like apps too? What is it doing? Because I know the screenshot from Apple shows some different more granular options for like calendar and messages but i'm curious what exactly if that's going to be something for third-party apps too like it is on iphone we they didn't say in this in the press release i imagine the way it's worded maybe like 
the apps opt in to dynamic text size with a new API, Mac OS 13. And then if you opt in, you then appear in that list. So like mm, yeah. you're compatible with the feature. So then in that list there, you're also listed there. Uh, that's how I would do it anyway, if that makes sense. So and obviously Apple's, Apple's, Apple's done it for calendar, find their mail messages and notes. And then in time, more and more apps will get on and add support. That's how I imagine it would work. Yeah. Uh, but we'll, we'll see. Because also, if you look on the if you look on the iPhone today, you can do dynamic text size per app, right? So mm-hmm. they have like, you can slide and it's like system wide. And then you can also turn it off or turn it on for individual applications. So I think it might just be a direct translation of that. And the only reason why it's slightly ambiguous is they don't like talking about future OS versions too much. And then the other press release Apple had this week, uh, product-wise, was about new concert features for Apple Maps and Apple Music. Uh, so the Maps app, they're basically adding a load of those um, curated guides, but specifically around like music culture, for instance, in LA. And then the more interesting thing, for me at least, was what they're doing for Apple Music. So they're mm-hmm. integrating set lists from popular artists, so fans can directly find, like, if a, if a if an artist is on tour they can go to the they can go to the artist page in apple music and find the direct set list from that tour and kind of listen along and then they have a button which says browse upcoming shows and that opens up a screen which basically shows you upcoming tour dates in your you know based around your current area so you get an idea about where your favorite artists are performing in terms of concerts and stuff and this kind of like dovetails with some features like spotify have but it's not. I would say it's a lot more surface level because, like, Spotify have a lot of deep integration with concerts and like buying tickets and all sorts of stuff. Whereas mm-hmm. this is very like, you know, dipping your toes in the water. I don't think you're going to get recommendations like, oh, so, you know, Ed Sheeran's performing near you soon or whatever. It's like you yeah. have to actively go and find it. Uh, but it's a start, you know. The setlist thing is what I think is the most interesting. But the uh, right now they only have like I think four or five different different artists yeah and i then the see they didn't say in the press release how exactly they're doing this but it seems like it's all manual they're not Probably. teaming up with because there's a website out there called setlist fm which is just an incredible website and it's crowdsourced so people go in and add what songs artists performed at which show so you can go look at like taylor swift for example and see the set list for all of her shows and all the different variation from night to night. So that, I mean, I don't, I don't know if Apple just didn't want to team up with somebody like that, or maybe they tried and set list FM said no, but it's going to be a big job to not only create the first versions of these set list playlists, but also keep them updated over time. Cause a lot of set lists are different from night to night. So it it's good, but it's I still would just go to setlist FM and view the setlist to then create a playlist probably. Yeah. I kind of imagine just based off the press release that they would like include this in their kind of working with the artists. So like when Taylor Swift is preparing new music or a new tour, she would you know, her team or whatever would then upload the set list for it, so then it would appear inside yeah. of Apple Music. That's kind of how I imagined it would work. But you I mean and I don't think it's gonna be fine grained to like it's going exactly. to be matching the set list from day to day. Like, you know, if an artist mixes it up and goes a bit impromptu on one night or whatever, I don't think that's going to be available. Yeah. Here. So for, it's basically like, for the super fans, you still want to use something like set, like Setlist FM. Yeah. One thing that I thought would be nice, which they don't mention here, is like automatic presentation of those set lists to you. Because like, you know, if you take a photo on the iPhone and it saves to the Photos app, they have like an onboard list of venues and like events so like oh, yeah. mm-hmm. if you take like a concert you know if you take a photo of a concert at like a major venue the phone knows about it right and even it like mm-hmm. lists it and then when you have slideshows or whatever it like even mention it um but what would be the next step is like once the phone knows you've been to the concert it could then be like now here's the set list for it you know like and just show yeah, you it directly that- Whereas this is like, oh, no, you have to go browse, then you have to go find the artist, then you have to scroll down, then you have to click on the set list, and there it is. Uh, so some more automatic helpfulness there or intelligence would be a nice uh, future improvement for that. And they did mention in the press release, too, that they're using quite a bit of Shazam data for this, which I just I think the Shazam acquisition is proving to be one of the most 
the smartest acquisitions Apple's made, just seeing the various ways both access to Shazam and use of Shazam data has kind of been integrated throughout Apple Music and obviously the button and control center. It's just, it's cool to see them keep kind of bringing Shazam further into the overall experience. Yeah, for sure. Because I think all of the concert listings have existed in Shazam for ages. Mm-hmm. And now it's like actually exposing in the app most people use, you know. Um, but the Shazam, the dedicated Shazam app still exists. And one of the reasons was they had stuff like this that Apple didn't have before. So uh, they're on a very slow, gradual path to integrating everything and, you know, enhancing it all like with the control center module. Okay, that's about it for this week. Uh, thank you very much, Chance, for joining me. Anything else you want to say at the end of the show? Uh, no, I mean, just follow me. I'm on Twitter or Mastodon at Chance H. Miller. And I do the 9 to 5 Mac Daily podcast, which it's kind of a shorter version of Happy Hour. It's the day's Apple news in 5 to 10 minutes. It's it's a it's a fun show to do, and I encourage you to go check it out. And, and without... Yeah. Um, bustling myself in there i imagine we might have a little collab in the uh, wwc time frame yes around usually about the week before wwdc i'll have benjamin or zach on and maybe after wwdc for a debrief so now's the time to subscribe yeah thank you very much chance uh you can follow me as always on twitter macedon at bzda mayo uh if you like this show you can support our sponsors um, you can leave a rating in Apple Podcasts, and you can even subscribe for the ad-free version of this show for four ninety nine per month. As always, we will be back next week. Uh, thank you, everybody. Bye bye.